Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Things are changing. That's what the disciples encounter in our passage today. It's been six days is how we start out. Six days. Six days later. Since what? Well, if you turn back a single chapter in Matthew, we have a pretty radical series of events that take place. Jesus uh, offers a question to his disciples, as he often does. The question who do you say I am? Because there are all these rumors. And Peter responds, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. But it's not a couple verses later that Jesus is talking then about how he must go to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And Peter says, no, we're not going to let that happen. And Peter was doing so good, y'all. He was, he was almost there. But then he has to open his mouth again. He doesn't listen. He has to open his mouth again. And Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus goes into his spiel on the condition of discipleship. That if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Six days later. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. We don't know what mountain this is. There's plenty of speculation. Uh, There's also plenty of hills and mountains in this area. Uh, We can guess that it's probably somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem because this is the journey that they were on, moving from Galilee to Jerusalem. Possibly not too far away from a, a region that's known as Caesarea Philippi, a place you can still go today. Uh, because this is the presumed spot of where Peter had his great declaration about Jesus. Uh, But location here isn't as important as the change that's going on. There's a pretty significant change. This moment in our passage is a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. 
things are changing. They're going from a more rural area into the urban area, the great city of the Jewish faith. And along the way, they have this encounter on the mountain that's supposed to prepare them for the change, for what lies ahead in Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem, everything gets crazy. Jesus is flipping over temples and cursing fig trees. People are trying to murder Jesus, and eventually they succeed, and you know, there are just multiple different oddities that end up happening along the way. And so they need to be prepared. At least some of them do. I always felt bad for the other disciples, the nine that didn't get to go up on the mountain. Seems pretty exclusive of Jesus. <laughs> Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. All right, you three, come with me. We're heading up the mountain. Jesus had his own inner circle here. Uh, but having these three come up the mountain is important because uh, in, in Jewish culture, uh, really a lot of culture during this time, anytime there was going to be something miraculous take place, it was important that there were at least two or three witnesses to give an account. Right, we still prioritize witnesses to this day. And so Jesus brings with him three witnesses to behold what is to come, this great transfiguration moment. Even though he tells them, don't tell anybody what you just saw until after I'm gone. Right? You ever had somebody tell you that before? Uh, for, for me, it was, uh, it was my dad. Don't, don't tell your mother about this until after I'm gone. Those kind of things. Uh, but this, this moment on the mountain, this transfiguration moment, is absolutely critical. And it's one that we might be all too familiar with. It's really a tale as old as time in any narrative. Before the main character can reach the climax of the story, they must go through some transformation. There has to be some change within a person before they can have you know, that great reconciliation, before they can have that great victory moment. You know, it's, it's like the staple of any Hallmark movie, if, uh, if you are into those kind of things like my wife is. There's going to be some scene where girl meets boy, boy meets girl kind of thing, and they're going to hit it off, right? And then there's going to be some like really horrendous falling out that's going to happen uh, roughly about two-thirds of the way through the movie. And then about three-quarters of the way through the movie, there's going to be this transformation moment where somebody's going to say, oh, I was wrong. Oh, I see now what was going on here. Oh, now I understand. And there will be this great reconciliation before the climax. Funny enough, the transfiguration falls at a lovely three-quarters of the way through Matthew. Tale as old as time here. There has to be this transformation before the climax. But this transformation isn't for the purpose of Jesus as much as it is for his disciples, that they could carry on this message uh, long after he is resurrected and ascends into heaven, that they could carry along this uh, message of truth here that they could carry along this sign, as it were. You see, everything's changing, and the transfiguration is the pivotal moment for that. But what the disciples don't know quite yet is that the changes that are coming are not just about their geographic location. It's not just about the fact that they're moving from Galilee to Jerusalem, but really, these changes that are coming are on an unprecedented global and historical scale that everything that's about to unfold is going to shape the next 2,000 plus years of history in radical ways. 
the changes that are coming are going to dramatically reshape not only their heritage, but also the heritage of countless others. But before their heritage can be reshaped, they must see their heritage unfold before them. And that's exactly what they get. And whenever I say their heritage, I mean their Jewish heritage. Uh, heard me say many times before, the Bible is not a history book. It's just not. It has historical things that happened in it, but it wasn't written to be an account of historical facts. Rather, it is an account of heritage, culture, transitions, changes, thing, movements of people. And uh, all of this scripture that uh, unfolds before this Jewish heritage that Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself have is about to be reshaped as Jesus brings forward the law and, and pre presents things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Or as Jesus gives these uh, moments of, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. As all of these messianic prophecies are coming to a head, their heritage is dramatically important to everything that Jesus is doing. And Matthew is going to make sure that that heritage is unfolded before his readers, particularly in the moment of the transfiguration. There are many, many key details that happen with the transfiguration that might not make a whole lot of sense, or we might not even give a second thought to it unless we've read through the Old Testament. For one, Jesus goes up a mountain. Why a mountain? Why does that matter? Well, in Jewish heritage, that's where you meet with God. It's, you know, basic science. If you want to get closer to the gods up there, you also have to go up, right? <laughs> that was at least the way that they thought. And so if you wanted to meet with somebody who was holy, with the divine, then you had to go up a mountain. And it was like that for all gods, including uh, Yahweh. That's why Jerusalem is a city on a hill. You go up, right? Uh, but it's not just about meeting with God. It's about the fact that every time God has done something profound in the life of God's people, it's been on a mountain. Moses meets with God in the burning bush on a mountain. Elijah meets with God in the still small voice on a mountain. Oh, and mountain after mountain shows up, and uh, it's pretty profound the things that God does on a mountain. The second thing we see in the transfiguration moment is that Jesus' face shines like the sun. And we could overlook this, except we've seen this happen before. Back in Exodus, Moses has an encounter with God on Mount Sinai with the burning bush. And after spending so much time with God, as Moses is coming down the mountain, his face is shining. But there's a difference, right? Moses' face was shining as a reflection of God. Jesus' face shines from within as a uh, denoting that Jesus himself is God. And his clothes become dazzling white. This is a... Uh, a comment back to the book of Daniel, a prophecy in Daniel where, uh, where we have this uh, apocalyptic vision in which all of their clothes are dazzling white. This scene of uh, the great judgment of God, the great movement of God. Then we have two individuals who show up there with him. And how on earth they know that it's Moses and Elijah that's shown up, I have no idea. 
Uh, maybe they were wearing name tags. That's the best I've got. But, you know, it's been a, a few hundred, if not thousands of years since anybody's seen these two individuals. They didn't have cameras around back then. And, you know, you've seen the cave paintings. Their artistic abilities were not spectacular. So they just encounter these two individuals and say, that must be Moses and Elijah. Probably was, but anyway. These two people are significantly showing up here because these two people are people who have acted as God's vessels in the world during these pivotal times. Moses is the one who leads uh, the people of God out of uh, slavery in Egypt and towards the promised land. Elijah is the uh, prophet who shows up in one of the most desperate moments in the history of Israel when King Ahab uh, is, is literally tearing down their, uh, their heritage and faith into pieces and Elijah is trying to stand up for them and call the people back to God. These two people are key figures that are included also in the various messianic prophecies about who Jesus is going to be, how Jesus is going to reflect them, how Jesus is going to complete them. Then we have this other moment. While they were still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, which is you know, already a redundancy, right? Clouds aren't bright, they're dark. But we have a bright cloud that's shown up here. And coming out of that cloud, a voice harkens back to, again, the Exodus story. There's a moment in which, uh, you know how people always say, like, It'll be, my life would be so much easier if God would just speak directly to me and tell me exactly what I want, uh, what I need to hear, what God wants me to do. The people of Israel will tell you that's not what you ever want to happen. The people of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai, and they're all crowded around the base of the mountain, and God shows up in this cloud and speaks to them. And they are so petrified by what they experience, they beg Moses, never let that crazy God do something that crazy again. It was mortifying to them. So we have here another reflection of what we call a theophany, the moment in which God shows up. Uh, and this theophany is meant to harken back to that moment right there. And even the, the disciples, after encountering this theophany, you know, they crumble in fear themselves, a reflection of the Israelites whenever they were at the base of Mount Sinai. And from there, we have God's declaration of a chosen one. This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. This declaration of a chosen one is a reflection on multiple points in which God has called forth attention to somebody that God has chosen or anointed. By the way, the word anointed comes from, that we have, comes from the word Messiah or Christ, both which mean the anointed one. Somebody who is anointed by God to fulfill God's purposes, uh, and people have to be uh, shown that that's the person God has chosen. And we hearken this back to uh, Samuel. Whenever Samuel is around, he is told by God to anoint David as king. Samuel's like, this scrawny kid? Sure. God says, yes, this is the one I have chosen. So all of these things are coming together. And there, there is one more thing that doesn't show up in Matthew's account of, uh, of the transfiguration, but shows up in Luke's account. 
right? In Matthew's account, we don't get a glimpse of what they are, what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about, but they're having some conversation. Luke gives us a glimpse into it, and it says that they're talking about his departure, Jesus's departure, but the actual word they're using there is Jesus's exodus. Oh, we know about the exodus, right? We have all of these moments that are happening on the mount here for the transfiguration that are hearkening back through the Jewish heritage, giving a base for the changes that are to come. We might wonder, why does all of this matter? And it's simply because every cycle of change is rooted in the importance of previous cycles. We all carry on with us things of our past that influence our present. For example, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, particularly with uh, teenage girls right now, bell-bottoms are back. Chokers are back. There, there was that, there's been that whole movement where like Polaroids are back and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, the, the oddities, we, we're constantly going through these cycles in which we bring back the basis from which we have come. Each cycle, however, uh, calls us to ask the question about what is truly important in our journey of faith. And whenever I'm talking about cycles, I want to bring attention to something that I thought that I had come up with on my own, but as Ecclesiastes tells us, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I realized a few years ago that there's a, that there's a recurring pattern that happens across uh, human history, uh, particularly the history of the people of God, and it happens in about a 500-year cycle. That every 500 years, there is some radical transformation in the life of the church or in the Jewish faith, in, in the life of the people of God. And I thought I had found this out on my own. No, people have been writing about it for ages, go figure. Uh, but these 500-year cycles are significant to us, right? The last one we had was in the uh, 1500s with the Protestant Reformation point that radically changed everything for the life of the church. And before that happened with the schism of 1054, which if you don't know what the schism of 1054 is, that's the point where uh, the pope excommunicated half of the church. Yeah, half of the church, the eastern half, by the way. Uh, and we then have the birth of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, but the church ends up going through this massive schism in 1054 uh, that reshapes the way that Christianity looks throughout the globe. 500 years before that, we have the fall of the Roman Empire. And 500 years before that, we have the advent, the birth of Christ. And 500 years before that... We have the moment in which the Jewish people return from their exile and complete the new temple. And 500 years before that, we have the moment in which David is pronounced king over Israel. And 500 years before that, we have the birth of Moses, the one who is going to lead the people of Israel out of slavery. And 500 years before that, we have the birth of Jacob. And do you know why that's important? Does anybody else know what, what other name Jacob had? Israel, yes. The birth of Israel, right, right there. And we could go back even further, 500 years before that-ish, we have uh, Noah and the flood, and, you know, we could keep on playing this game as long as you would like. I hope you see where I'm, what I'm getting at here, this 500-year cycle. Remember when I said the last one was in the 1500s? A little simple math will get us to recognize that uh, here we are, 
500 years later, ready for a new cycle in the life of the church. We are, indeed, facing a new era in the life cycle of the people of God. And uh, believe it or not, everybody has their own opinions about what that, looks, what that does look like, what that should look like. Uh, and it's, it's uh, quite frankly, all across the board. You know, you have people way over here who have one thing to say about it, and people way over here who have something to say about it, and people all through the middle who think that they've got it right. Uh, and we have all of these divisions, these hateful speeches, these debates and arguments. There are people who think they're right, and then there are people who know they are right, and you know which one's more dangerous. And if we keep this up, the church will continue to fracture over and over and over and over again until there's nothing left. The United Methodist Church being a key picture in all of that. And do you know the main reason why this is happening? Believe it or not, it's happening because of the exact same reason it happened in 1054, the schism uh, at that point. It isn't a matter of theology. The, uh, the church, whenever the Pope excommunicated half the church, it wasn't over a matter of theology uh, or, excuse me, over a matter of any kind of heresy or anything like that. It was a simple miscommunication, what we call the filioque, filioque clause. That's hard to say. Filioque clause. Anyway, if you want to know more about that, talk to me afterwards. Uh, but it's a simple miscommunication that caused the church to fracture in half. Welcome to the 21st century, ladies and gentlemen, where we've been doing the exact same thing we've been doing for the past many millennia. The main reason why we keep having all of this fracturing, why we keep having all of this division, is because everyone is talking and no one is listening. As simple as that. Everyone is trying to provide answers, and no one is willing to ask or sit with the important questions. We undervalue the importance of those good questions, and we start answering them before we've even given them much thought. Fun fact for a moment here. In the Gospels, Jesus is asked, somebody asks Jesus, 187 questions. Guess how many of those he answers? Maybe eight. More like seven. Probably six. Maybe none of them. Very difficult to say with Jesus. 187 questions, and he leaves about 180 of them unanswered. Do you know how many questions Jesus himself asks? 307. 307 questions. Maybe what our faith is missing is the opportunity to listen to and reflect on good questions. If you've ever sat with, Bible, sat with me in Bible study before, you know I don't like giving answers. I think answers are boring. I think they're weird. And also, I'm probably going to be wrong if I give you an answer. I think what's far more important are the questions that we sit with, the questions we wrestle to. Our failure to listen to one another 
is one of the biggest issues humanity is facing right now. And it happens at every level of human civilization. There are international wars and disagreements going on because nobody will listen. We just have accusations. Our nation's political future is in shambles because no one will listen. We just say, I'm red and I'm blue and I'm right and you're wrong. Our own city faces countless challenges because nobody will listen to what the real issues are. The United Methodist Church is fracturing because no one will listen to what even the debate is. Which is so silly because did you know that, the, that on both sides people are saying the exact same thing? That we need to prioritize Christ? It's happening on both sides of the debate and nobody actually wants to listen to one another. They, they just say, no, you're wrong. And how silly is that? But even in families, we have people hurting because no one will listen. As a therapist, uh, I do a lot of couples sessions, uh, which I love doing couples therapy. I think it's so much fun and it's so fascinating. Uh, but anytime I meet with a couple, I always, 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 always give them the same first homework assignment. And the reason why I always, always, always give them the same first homework assignment is because every single one of them are facing the, basically the exact same issue, which is, comes down to communication. And the very first homework assignment that I give them is called the three-second rule. Perhaps you've heard of it before. It's simply, whenever you're talking with your partner, or especially whenever you're arguing with them, after they've said something, Wait three seconds before you respond. That's it. And do you know why I tell them to do that? Because we have this habitual thing that we do, that whenever we're in a conversation with somebody, especially an argument, that we start preparing our response before they've even finished talking. And so we completely miss what they're trying to say because we've stopped actually listening to them and we've started listening to our own internal dialogue. And we start putting up a whole bunch of assumptions about what they're saying and what their intention is that we completely overlook the whole point of what we're even talking about just so we can say that we're right. And so I give them this three-second rule because it gives, gives us an opportunity to breathe, to take a moment to pause, to actually hear what's being said, and in those three seconds, we can do all of that and formulate our response after we've just listened to what they had to say. Can you imagine what would happen if we all started taking more time to listen? Can you imagine what would have happened if Peter used the three-second rule? Here he is up on the mountain with Jesus in this miraculous moment, and Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. Peter, 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 Peter. You were so close, Peter. You were in one of the most holy moments that has ever happened on the face of the planet. And you make it about yourself. Come on, man. Take a moment. Just a moment. This is why I think God, whenever God responds to the clouds, says, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Don't make it about yourself, Peter. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say, not what you have to say, not what you think is right, not what you think the answer to this moment is. Listen to him. And so, friends, that 
is the challenge I want to hand each and every one of us as we step into the season of Lent here in just a few moments. From the point of transfiguration into many days and nights of reflection. Listen to him. The church is in the midst of its next life cycle change. It is. It's inevitable. It's what happens all the time across history. And if we want it to be the kind of change that transforms the world in love, then our task is simple. Listen to him. When Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, listen to him. When Jesus tells us to be a neighbor like the good Samaritan, listen to him. When Jesus tells us the cost of discipleship, listen to him. When Jesus calls us out onto the raging seas, listen to him. When Jesus calls us to grow in our faith and not be content with the answers we have believed all our lives, listen to him. When Jesus challenges us with hard questions, listen to him. We are a church that needs to stop pretending that we have all the answers and need to start listening to the one whom God has chosen. Because the church doesn't have all the answers, friends. And we were never meant to have all the answers. We weren't meant to be some massive think tank where everybody goes about saying what's right and what's wrong. No, we were meant to be a community of love and compassion, empathy and connection, service and goodness. So I think that if we're going to return to that in this next life cycle of the church, we have to do so by listening. Let us be a listening church for the sake of this next life cycle. Let us be a listening church in the midst of every change. Let us be a listening church that is for Christ and not ourselves. And let us pray.